David Tierney is a well-known and respected attorney in Phoenix. Sixty years ago, he was a student and a participant in some of the early civil rights activities in the South. That's now a part of our history. From KTAR News, this is The Think Tank, hosted by Dr. Mike O'Neill. Early 60s, David, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, Slavery had been abolished for a century, at least in name. But in the South, a system of de facto segregation had developed. I wonder if we could start by asking you to describe that system and... uh, uh, how it how it operated in the South in roughly that period. So the hundred years that you mentioned uh, were tough on all the black folks in the South. Uh, what happened was that Lincoln, as he died, was ready to do a wonderful reconstruction of the South. But the fellow who succeeded Lincoln, unfortunately, was not able, not capable to do that and got into trouble trying to enforce the 13th and 14th Amendments. And that led to his having to make a political deal, withdrawing all the federal troops to protect the blacks in the South. As a consequence with the uh, economy in shambles, the returning soldiers who, unless they took an oath to the Union, could not hold any office or own property or whatever. They took it out on the blacks and they used them as slave labor, although they were no longer slaves. There started a reign of terror where uh, the uh, ex-Confederate soldiers put on white sheets, uh, said they were the ghosts of Confederates killed in battle, and they enforced what they felt were the social mores. And that reign of terror uh, on any black that uh, raised his head in protest to any aspect of life in the South was swift, vicious, and and terminal. And so that went on all the way into the 30s and uh, resulted in the hollowing out of the South because blacks in huge numbers moved up to Detroit and Chicago to join the unions and uh, work in the auto plants. Called it the Great Migration. Correct. I mean, it's one of the migrations that we've had in the United States. It's unlike any other. So – how do how do we get get us into what's the what do you think is the immediate precursor? You know, we know there was civil rights activities in the, in the sixties and and a little bit before that in the fifty. What after all of these years? What do you think was the impetus to produce that? The soldiers, the black soldiers returning from World War One, and, and there were significant numbers of blacks uh, in the army, not in very important. They were menial roles, truck drivers and that kind of thing, teamsters. But they returned and they brought weapons with them and they returned feeling that they were entitled to the rights they had been fighting for in France. And when they came back, they were very much disappointed to find how things were. There followed the 30s and the 40s, and it was tough in the South, and those people were kind of aging out a little bit. But as we got through the end of the Depression and those still living in the South uh, began to experience the, the economies rising during World War II, then soldiers came back, larger numbers now, blacks coming back and having had some combat roles. They came back and, again, were terribly disappointed. And clergy uh, of all colors and stripes uh, were becoming interested in the situation in the South. And so gradually from, say, 46 onward, we had a steady increase in interest interest in civil rights. And that eventually accumulated in uh, what happened in the 60s. 
I'm trying to think. Uh, back up for just a second, because I think there's one thing historically that I found about only recently, and that was the uh, 1890s in Wilmington. Yes. <laughs> um, the only incident, uh, instance in United States history where a duly elected government was overthrown by force of arms. Yes, I think that's true. There have been other attempts. It was, it, was a, it was a biracial government voted in, and basically there was a white armed insurrection that drove the blacks who were involved out, killed many of them, and the whites were either either driven out or it may, have, may have been killed, less clear, I think, historically. I think this is like the Shays Rebellion in 1790 uh, in Massachusetts. I mean, it was a spontaneous, uh, poorly organized uh, rabble rouser, mm-hmm. you know, sudden thing that set upon the folks in Delaware. And uh, it was an extraordinary event. Now, as I think post-World War II in terms of early events in the civil rights movement, the first thing that comes to my mind is Montgomery bus boycott 1955. And for me, the second thing is Eisenhower nationalizing the National Guard, uh, I think it was 57, in Little Rock uh, to get one or two white, uh, one or two black girls into a school. And this made Time magazine, Life magazine. It was extraordinary. And this, it was precipitated by the 1954 Supreme Court decision that said segregation, separation is inherently unequal and you should desegregate the schools in all, with all deliberate speed, which the South interpreted as when hell freezes over. Brown versus Board of Education. Yeah, 1950, which was finally enforced, I remember because I started college at the time, was finally enforced only in the fall of 1969. True. When they said, okay, enough, with all deliberate speed means now. You don't open the schools unintegrated. Not only that, but so many people got elected in the South uh, because they voiced opposition mm-hmm. to that. I mean, it was just a rallying cry throughout the South. Uh, I think of Wallace at a certain point in time. Who, who lost an election as a comparative moderate for Alabama and swore, he, quote, I'll never be out segged again. And in 1964, when he was uh, giving his inauguration speech, he said, segregation now, segregation forever. And, and became a symbol of that only in, his, until his later days. No. He was elected the last time with a lot of black votes. Memory ran for president um, yeah. on a segregationist mm-hmm. platform and then 68 then yeah. was 64 and 68 yeah. and he was felled by an assassin's bullet and then i think he kind of got religion thereafter mm-hmm. but well yeah. and there were also a lot of reg- blacks who had become registered for vote i think they're religion or pragmatic <laughs> politics you can take your pick right <laughs> so what about yourself how, how how did you first get involved with this so in 1957 Emmett Till, which is memorialized in a great movie called Till. You ought to see it. It's just really a marvelous movie. Emmett Till's demise was just national news. His first, you know, it's front page week after week after week. 1958, I graduated from Hingham High School and I went off to Brandeis University in Waltham, Massachusetts. And Brandeis was kind of a special place. It had been created by American Jewry who decided they were fed up with their children not being able to get into the uh, blue-chip Ivy League schools. So they created Brandeis, and they fed it with money, and it just, like a flower, came out of the cracks uh, in the Waltham landscape. 
And Brandeis was uh, extremely liberal, forward-thinking, but also activist. And I think of the 31 universities in Boston at the time, there was none more active than Brandeis. The second would be Boston College, which was Irish Americans who had been denied access to universities. And that is how Boston College had come into existence some 80 years before. Hmm. Anyway, the the universities were all of a sudden uh, confronted with what was going on with the Howard University students who in 57, 58 began sitting in at lunch counters. The Howard University people said, uh, we're tired of not getting served. And they thought they'd take on eating establishments and access to getting served at lunch counters. They would sit in in Woolworth stores uh, south of Washington, D.C. and Virginia and they would sit 10 hours, not get served, and then a mob would collect uh, large enough. They'd pull them off the seats, drag them out in the streets, beat the crap out of them. And then the police would come in and arrest them for disturbing the peace. And so students all over the nation, but mostly in the Northeast, began thinking, we got to get in on this. These guys uh, deserve our support. And Brandeis was the leader of the pack, and I was young and just arrived in Brandeis in 58, and I became very active in the unit. We had um, a group, a large group in Brandeis, and we would picket Woolworth stores and other places. And so the year 58 to 59 was kind of my immersion for the first time. My high school hadn't been that active at all. But boy, I'll tell you, the university scene in Boston, 58, 59, and, on, and thereafter, was wild with interest on the, the civil rights game. That early is news to me. Well... It kept growing and growing, mm-hmm. and by the time I left Brandeis in 62, things were at kind of a fever pitch, um, and things developed incrementally as uh, time went on inside of Brandeis. And I happened to get into student government because of my involvement in this uh, very in- interesting feature of Brandeis, and it gave me visibility and prominence, and I got elected early to the student government. I spent three years in student government, all of them as the treasurer of the student union, which was interesting um, because, uh, as the president of Brandeis said, we have a school that's mostly Jewish and we have an Irishman as the treasurer of the student union. <laughs> anyway. This confrontation of stereotypes. <laughs> it, it all worked out. Uh, the president was Abram Sacker, and he was at first very concerned and upset about uh, the way the students were uh, stomping around in places where he wanted to raise money for Brandeis. And uh, here were these uh, students who were out there on the picket lines and making a... And not popular in it, some neighborhoods, I it, guess. Huh? It, not at all popular. The uh, the Jewish community in Brookline, Massachusetts was not real receptive to uh, our having, you know, 20 or 30 people at a time in front of the Woolworth store. And, and we would have 60, 80, 100 people out on a Saturday morning or whatever. And uh, the, the Jewish community was pretty annoyed seeing us there. And of course, this upset Sacker, the president Who's of Who's trying to raise money. Who was that, beating the bushes hard mm-hmm. for money, which was needed to grow the university. Because it's a brand new institution that doesn't have an endowment. Brand new and great big glass buildings just popping out of the ground, uh, you know, every month it seemed as Brandeis uh, came into existence. So how do you end up in Mississippi? So this uh, business of uh, the movement and it, Brandeis' involvement in it uh, continued and continued. And uh, the Christmas period, December of 61, as I, I was working three jobs at Brandeis and had a scholarship, and I was really, really busy. I had a motorcycle and just flitting around everywhere and doing my shtick. 
And I'm working in the information booth, and it's December and cold, and I'm sitting there all alone in the information booth, and up drives a 1955 green four-door Ford car. And out of its steps, this guy, he's about 6'6", 6'2", rather, blonde, and he walks up to the window where I'm sitting at the information booth, ready to give anybody a tour of the university in this vacation period. I open the window, and he says, my name is Bill Higgs. I'm from Mississippi. I'm a civil rights lawyer, and I've been given a six-month fellowship at Brandeis University. And I said, I am the chairman of the Student Council Committee on Mississippi Civil Rights, and I am the treasurer of the student union. You and I are going to be friends. (laughs) And we were. Um, What happened next was that uh, within 20 or 30 days, Higgs and I had had a couple of luncheons and whatever, and we cooked up a plan And the plan was that in Mississippi, if you had a printing plant and you printed the materials that people needed to study to be able to pass the literacy test without passage of which you could not vote in Mississippi, the county recorders would make it so difficult and so arcane. And, you know, there were 51 questions and they were the same questions every time. But you had to know the names of the judges in your county. You had to, I mean, it was ridiculous. And so we would print materials because if you did it in Mississippi, they'd burn down your printing plant. So the student council would print these materials, the test and the answers. And then we would take a car, take out the back seat, fill it up to the, the level of the front seats. And one guy would sleep on the printed materials that were stockpiled there. Two guys would be in the front and we'd drive that old beater car down in Mississippi and the first trip, uh, we didn't have that many papers. We were setting up a channel to see how we could do this. But Higgs had all the contacts. And so we went down late January of 62. And it's like a 22-hour trip from Waltham, Massachusetts to Jackson, Mississippi. And our goal was to arrive at Tougaloo University roughly at a appointed time. We would take the printed materials and give them to the students. It was an all-black university right in the center of Jackson. Mm-hmm. They would take the materials and then take them out to the various churches and uh, schools and so forth where the blacks wanted to study these materials because it gave them a fighting chance to beat the county registrar and get registered. Of course, it was worth your life to say you were trying to register, but at least you could have you know, the answers to the questions and they could not dispute that you knew the answers to the questions. But those materials were worth their weight in gold because you couldn't make them down there. And so by setting up that channel and working with the students at Tugelo, uh, after the initial visit, then several other visits were made where I would go down with one or two other people. I went on all four or five trips that we made, and um, we eventually, I eventually stopped going in June, early June of 62. That was my last trip down as a agitator. I I can tell outside you, agitator outside agitator, and I can tell you that um, when we would go uh, after the first trip, I would stay at the home of a guy named Robert L T Smith. Smith was the owner of three little, almost like bodegas or small grocery stores, but in the black community, he was a very substantial guy. He was running for U.S. Senate, first black in a hundred years to run for that office. And he was under the guns, not just figuratively. I mean, he was really in fear of his life. And I would stay at his house. And um, wonderful guy. And uh, 
Okay. So we would go out to the various churches, and these would be places that had never seen a coat of paint, dirt floors, kids with no shoes running around, never seen shoes, people who were trying to vote um, and trying to register to vote, and courageous people who were putting their lives and their livelihood and their family security on the you line. Could, you could lose your job. You could lose worse. Well, just going down to the recorder's office, mm-hmm. your name would be brooded about next week, and the White Citizens Council or the Ku Klux Klan might pay you a visit. Uh, your employer would be contacted to tell you tell you that you, your last day on the job was yesterday. And you were done. And yet there were people, lots of people, who were attempting to register to vote. And there were some workers, you know, civil rights workers that were roaming the land and uh, trying to keep the movement going so that people stayed interested and got registered. And obviously if these people who were citizens and above the age and so forth could register – it would be a tremendous political force. And, uh, of course, the White Citizens Council was dedicated, and the Ku Klux Klan as well, dedicated to the notion that was not going to happen in Mississippi. And and what kind of numbers did you did you ultimately get registered? What kind of, what kind of proportions? I, I really can't tell. Thing, yeah. I can't tell what result came from the stuff that we got down mm-hmm. there. But I can tell you that it was absolute gold. I mean, you could not create that in Mississippi. And you couldn't help people study for the test unless you had some printed materials by which they could learn the questions and defend themselves well in front of these county recorders who were all just determined – the registrars just determined that they wouldn't let blacks uh, pass the test. My guess is that whites just sort of got a pass on that. Oh, yeah. This is unimportant to a white voter. But any black voter comes in, you'd be asked probably all 50 for 51 Mm -hmm. questions. Hours sitting, waiting to be called, hours mm-hmm. taking the test and challenging your results. And, it, it, and you know, the fact was that you couldn't get through the gates if you couldn't pass this test. It was called the literacy test. It was also a poll tax, which in each Sense county. Sense out loud in a constitutional it, amendment. <laughs> but in those days, I mean, if you couldn't pay 20 or $30 in your county, and, and for somebody who was a sharecropper, you know, up north in Mississippi, working shares on a farm that his father had been a slave on. <laughs> There's no chance that he could pay the poll tax, but they would scrape together the money and then they would study the test. And these were people who weren't really educated and had a hard time studying. But it was invigorating to see at each stop, you know, there'd be 30 or 50 people and they had roused themselves and steeled themselves and were prepared to fight for this right. And you felt like such a tool that all you were doing is handing out some paper. Mm-hmm. But this was paper that was absolutely essential to uh, making things happen. I, I don't have any way of counting how many people that might affect it. How, how, how deep was the sense of fear? Not, not on the, you've already described it for the indigenous blacks, but for the mm-hmm. folks who came down, most of whom I assume were white. Uh, I don't remember any black guys coming down to mm-hmm. work, um, but there were plenty of black folks there, and I, I met a bunch of very fine people that were And they that could work. be subject to oh. not only physical threat, but loss of job, whatever. I'm wondering, what was the sense of fear oh. amongst those of you who, who were outside agitators? I, I've said this before. I was scared witless the whole time. That's my careful diction. That rhymes with something else. Mm-hmm. I was scared witless uh, most of the time I was there, and 
One of the reasons I quit in June and stopped making the trips down was first that the student government money to print the materials dried up because I had graduated. But in addition, uh, the last time I was down there, the 53 dusty red four-door Chevrolet I was driving, I got a rattle in my front uh, front of the car, and I finally got annoyed with the rattle, got out and checked what it was, and my bullet a bullet had penetrated the hubcap on the right front wheel, and mm-hmm. I thought that's a sign, Tierney. This is you know you got to work this summer. Serious. You got to work this summer to get ready for Harvard Law School, and it's it's time to pack yeah. it in. And so uh, after the fourth or fifth trip, I just said I got to stop. My parents were going nuts that I was going down there, and uh, I can tell you that Bill Higgs, who was a civil rights lawyer, uh, when he arrived in Brandeis, his wife was traumatized because he had become a civil rights lawyer when the 61 Trailways bus arrived with the Freedom Riders. And the mob pulled the people on the bus off, breaking the windows, breaking open the door, dragged them out, put them on the ground, beat the crap out of them, and then stepped aside so that the cops could arrest them uh, for breach of the peace and other charges. Arrest the people who were on the bus, not the people who were beating them up. The bleeding passengers were arrested. And then uh, they were all given trial dates that were a week or two or three apart so that no one lawyer would be able to just represent them all in a mm-hmm. series on one, two, three, five days. So Higgs decided that he would be a civil rights lawyer. He went to his large law firm where he was working, and he was an Ole Miss student, a standout Ole Miss student. And he had gone to Harvard Law School. I think he graduated in 59. And so here it is, 62. He's, you know three-year associate in a large law firm in Jackson, Mississippi, and he went to the managing partner and said, I'm going to represent these people pro bono. And they said, yesterday was your last day on your job. And so Higgs went out and hung up a shingle and said, I am a civil rights lawyer. He had more business than he could possibly (laughs) deal with. Nobody to pay much money, but uh, Higgs was really sticking his neck out. He was constantly in fear of his life. He, he didn't carry a weapon. It's just you didn't do that because you were part of a, a, a nonviolent movement. But everybody down there, Medgar Evers, Aaron Henry, uh, Higgs, everybody was just terribly in fear of his life. Well, um, we're, we're getting out of time here. I hope you can come back. And, and we, we got way too much to cover in, in one session. I hope you'll come back next week. And we'll pick up the story where we left off. Thank you. We'll see you next week and with a continuation of a fascinating story that's a part of our history, oft forgotten. But uh, we'll be back next week to tell more tales. <laughs>